Well, hello there and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to figure out how we can prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome, beyond excited to have you here. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you for coming back every single week. And today, whether you are a new friend or an old friend, you and I get to hang out with Darina Lanza. And in this episode, I want you to look up for three specific things. Number one, why Darina decided to focus on charging $100,000 and up for her coaching. Number two, why one of the keys to increasing your prices requires creating a velvet rope in your business. And number three, how you can uncover and transform the negative unconscious narratives and stories running around in your head to unlock more velocity in your life. So you may be wondering who the heck is Darina Lanza? Well, I will say the first time I read her bio, my first reaction as you'll hear on the show is what the heck? There's no way that one human has accomplished all this. So Darina has had many past lives and I'll give you just a high level summary of some of the things that Darina has done. So in her career in M&A, Darina completed domestic and international transactions in industries, including medical, luxury goods, semiconductor, and light manufacturing. To date, as a direct result of working with her, Darina's clients' revenues have increased by $2 billion. And before entering the business world, Darina was an aeronautical engineer at Draper Lab, MIT, yes, a rocket scientist. And prior to that, she was a medical physicist at the radiation oncology department at Rhode Island Hospital. And she was also a research faculty at Brown University Medical School. On top of that, she was also an adjunct faculty at Northeastern University for 20 years, first in the mathematics department and then in the business school. She has published industry-shifting peer-reviewed papers in professional journals in multiple fields, some of which are still being cited today. So if you can't tell, that is on top of the fact that I also know that she was a certified pistol instructor, a tactical range officer, a ski instructor, a pyrotechnician, and she has she was a competitive sailor having sailed in the IOD World Championships. So, so much, as you can tell, definition of an eclectic background. And there's so much that Darina and I talk about today. We actually had two conversations prior to this recording just to figure out how we can narrow down what the heck we were going to talk about and bring to you today. But I think you're going to love the end output because we really bank on Darina's experience of helping her clients increase revenues by over $2 billion in a way that will help you to position yourself more effectively with your clients. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with Darina Lanza. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Darina, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. This is going to be a blast. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I know you and I have had several conversations prior to this about you have so much content, so much experience, and we only have one hour to cover it all. So as we were joking about beforehand, we'll see how much we can cover today. But one of the stories that you and I had kind of unearthed as we had an initial discussion that I think kind of points to some of the direction that you at least started heading in your earlier years has to do with nursery school. So uh, I didn't tell you this, Darina, <laughs> but when I was little, I got kicked out of nursery school. Uh, or I don't know if it was considered nursery school, but my mom tried to put me away and I got kicked out for 
just two minutes later for crying too much. So I know you have a slightly different experience, uh, but tell us a little bit about getting kicked out of nursery school and what that had to do with. I actually, excuse me. uh, Actually, I think it was kindergarten. Kindergarten. The the kids were really big and I was like two. And uh, so the kids were probably four. So that's why I'm guessing it was, it was uh, uh, kindergarten. My parents, I, uh, I came to the United States uh, when I was around two. My parents had come prior and uh, they decided that it would be a good idea for me to learn English. And the best way to do it was to throw me in school. So off I went to school and uh, we had those wooden benches with the ink wells. You're too young to remember those, but maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the desks picked up and you had your papers and stuff inside the desks and it was um, run by some nuns. Uh, And uh, yeah, so I, I have a distaste. I developed a distaste for nuns at a very early age. Anyway, there was this girl, she wasn't, sitting next to me, but she has some kind of an issue with me and was giving me some kind of grief. I don't remember what kind. And she had probably hair down to here, dark brown. I remember it. And I got pissed off. So I went and I pulled her hair because she was harassing me. Oh my God. She goes running to the nun. Oh my God, pulled my, that girl pulled my hair, blah, 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 blah. So the nun in uh, infinite nun wisdom decided that the two-year-old needed to be punished for pulling the hair of the four-year-old. So they stuck me in up in the upper right-hand corner in a single desk with one inkwell. And I'm sitting there. I am really pissed off. I'm thinking the worst things a two-year-old could possibly think uh, about this nun, about the girl and so on. And as soon as I got a chance, I went and I pulled that kid's hair again, damn it. <laughs> well, anyway, so I go home and the next day my father dropped, bring, takes me. And uh, the nun said that I am no longer welcome there because I'm a troublemaker. Mm. So there and you go. so so begins a journey of not fitting in and figuring <laughs> out how to how to how to make the world a place that you can thrive in by taking things in your own hands. So I I wanted to start there just because it kind of alludes to some of your mischievous nature, maybe. But also, as people have probably heard from the bio ahead of time, like I I labeled your I'll just say it, Darina. Like I labeled your bio as the what the fuck bio. Like there's no way one human. <laughs> All of this stuff. So like, I mean, adding $2 billion of revenue to clients is a direct result of working with you. Uh, Rocket scientist, medical physicist, uh, adjunct faculty at for Northeastern University at mathematics and business school certified pistol instructor, all this crazy stuff. So I want to, I want to zoom in on some of this. Obviously this is part of the reason why now you listen and you know, like, okay, no, there's no, no way we can cover this in, <laughs> in an hour. But one of the things that stuck out to me was something that we haven't discussed yet. And it says that you were a competitive sailor and you sailed in the IOD world championships and other international regattas. Maybe I even, I'm not Regattas, totally butchered that one. But but I would love for you to share, obviously, if you went to world championships and something and you obviously climbed to the top in many different fields, you have been uh, applied that insight into other areas of your life. So I would love for you to share maybe any uh, life wisdom or things that you've applied to your life that you learned from sailing. Well, um, 
a couple of things. The boats that I, I only won two regattas with me steering. The other <laughs> regattas were with me on crew, which is as important uh, as the, the helmsman doing the steering. Then of course you have the tactician, which is who's reading the wind and you know, telling you what people were, which way to go. Uh, but really two things. Uh, one is that you've got to have a team that works together seamlessly and can essentially read each other's mind. And the second thing is that there isn't any room for anything less than peak performance, because if you're on one of these sailboats, and these, these were um, world championships, they were around the buoy races, kind of like at the America's Cup, they weren't like, you know, uh, Newport to Bermuda, where you've got the handicaps and all that stuff. These were uh, identical boats as, uh, as identical as they can be. Everybody bought the sails at the same time and uh, to try to keep them really as a one design. So there's no room for error if you're within uh, those very, very small margins, man, you know, when you get to a mark, you should hear the screaming, overlap, give me room, everybody's yelling and screaming at other boats, at the, the skippers screaming at the crew, that's what they usually do, they're not calm, <laughs> <laughs> but everything's got to run like clockwork, and that's very much the case if you're going to build a business, for instance, you want to have it run like clockwork, you don't want to have leaks of, oh, I can't do this, or oh, this is hard, oh, I tried really hard, but I, you know, I, I messed up. Yeah, people are going to mess up occasionally, rarely, when they're sailing, because you're so tuned, you've been doing it mm -hmm. so much. And generally, at the world championship level, you, you have a bunch of skippers on board, mm. right? Um, you know, people that know how to do everything on the entire boat, basically. I can imagine too, in those high pressure situations where everybody has their job that they're focused on, obviously communication is mission critical to the whole thing that just having those kinds of hobbies where you're playing in a completely different arena than where you're normally playing in, it just gives you a brand new perspective with which to view the other stuff that you are operating in. And especially when there's like a tight deadline, like we're going from here and we're finishing there, like you can very clearly look at the distinct parts and then build up from there. So is that a parallel that you've seen as well as like the focus of being able to chunk in or zone in on something specific and then pull that out to other areas that may not normally seem related, but they actually are? Yeah, it, it's interesting that you should bring that out. It reminds me also of uh, racing, swimming, uh, racing, skiing, and racing, you know, sailboats. What else have I raced? I guess the pistol, <laughs> the pistol competition is also relevant. <clears throat> Everything I've done in order to be the be, come out uh, on the top, the winner, it requires, how can I say this? It's um, a very small uh, amount of time between winning and coming in second mm. or even third. It's, it's not like uh, the secretariat in the Belmont 
know, winning by how many lengths, 30 leg lengths or something. No, you, you generally don't have that. Although it does happen occasionally. I do have a nice photograph of a horizon job. All the other sales are in the background. We're way on front. <laughs> Truth be told, we were in second place. <laughs> there was a boat in front of us. But anyway, whatever. It was during one of our Saturday races. But anyway, cool, cool picture. But generally, um, when you're used to competing where uh, there's a very thin margin between winning and coming in second, I think that also applies in business because there are an awful lot of really good people out there. And if you can just get that small edge, you can uh, be the one that's really at peak. And yeah. once you get there, then you can... Um, you can broaden the uh, the space between you and number two, but the key Love that. is getting there to begin with. I just finished at the time that we're recording this. I recorded yesterday. I did a Father's Day episode, like seven key things that I learned from my dad, and that's one of the things that I pulled from my dad is like learning from random other places, but like just having that ability of like focusing on other things just gives you incredible perspective. So I love that, and I, I want to ask kind of a. I guess I'll just, I'll frame it as a blunt question. So it's like, you've climbed to the top in many different fields. And like, you shared that story in the very beginning about getting kicked out of and kind of being a little bit of a rebel. And I can see in the mind of a two-year-old, right? That like, you're like, oh, I don't fit in. I need to prove myself, right? Like I need to master and get good at all these different topics. And you've cr climbed to the top in all these different fields. And I'm just, uh, fields, I'm just qu uh, curious, like, how did it, how does it feel once you hit the top of a, uh, a, uh, like a, a mountain, you've achieved a new thing. Did, did you feel a sense of worthiness or did it still feel a little bit empty as you kind of chased all those different mountains? Um, well, first of all, I was <clears throat> never motivated by other people's opinions other than my father's. Mm. <laughs> and if somebody says, I can't do something, I'm like, well, you're not qualified to have an opinion. It doesn't make a lot of people are motivated by that kind of thing. And I never was, you know, my reaction is, well, you're obviously an idiot. So, <laughs> and that's the end of that. But um, I, I guess I've gotten to the top of so many different fields. When I get there, it wouldn't feel like I was at the top. Hmm. Uh, one of the things my husband always bugged, you know, makes fun of me about is that to me, nothing is hard. Either you do it or you don't. I mean, I, I don't understand the concept of hard, hmm. um, never have. So in that sense, you, I, I get to the top and I would sit there and go, cause I've always had this thing that I'm nothing special. I'm not worthy, et cetera, et cetera. Although I finally got rid of all that. Thank you very much. Um, I would get there and I was sitting there going, well, why doesn't everybody else do it? I mean, it's not that hard. I just did it. I mean, right. So it didn't feel like being at peak. In retrospect, I look and I go, oh, wow. Gee, in, looking back, it looks a lot more impressive than when you're actually doing it. It didn't seem like a big deal at all. Mm -hmm. So I, there's so much gold that you just said right there. I want to zoom in. Like, it, like you said that the, you had lots of these feelings of unworthiness or not feeling worthy, but you were able to kind of conquer that. And I feel like that is one of those core human things that 
hold us back from so much is that feeling of worthiness, not feeling worthy. So what, what are some of the ways that you were able to tackle that and overcome that in your life? Well, I did it the hard way. <clears throat> now I figured out how to do it for clients the easy way. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially you can shift immediately. And it's a combination of changing your frame of reference, reframing things that are holding you back, relying on your unconscious mind, which really is controlling, I think now now they (laughs) say it's 99% of your existence and of course, you know, our three-dimensional presence is just an infinitesimal in the overall scheme of where we are in consciousness, but that's a separate issue. But if uh, you get really, really good at asking your unconscious mind to clear things up for you and show you where stuff is coming from, and it shows you what winds up happening Uh, is you realize that the representations that you made when you were a tiny little kid, you know, two years old or whatever, oh, X, Y, Z happened. Therefore, that means that I'm not worthy or whatever, or I don't deserve it, or I'm not lovable. You know, the usual collection of things that everybody has. Once you go back and you see the initial uh, event that could be in this life or a past life or even back in, in uh, previous uh, DNA in your ancestry. And you look and you go, oh, that was stupid. And it kind of drops away. And all of a sudden, this event and this feeling of unworthiness is neutral. Where in the past, somebody might say something to you and you'd go and clamp down into your shell and go, oh my God, I'm a terrible person, I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. You get to a point, uh, and this is part of what I do uh, for clients, you, you get them to a point where if somebody were to say the same thing to them going forward, it would be like water off a duck's back. It, it wouldn't have any kind of impact, positive or mm. negative. So let's, let's zoom into that particular example that we started with the nursery. So like the, I would assume the narrative that you had formed as some form of a two-year-old is like, I don't belong. I'm not worthy or I'm a bad kid or something like that. So maybe that's wrong, but correct me. Like, like, let's just say someone has a narrative where they were maybe made fun of by a teacher or they had a terrible experience and like they, they kind of created a, maybe a subconscious or a conscious narrative around that particular instance. How would you encourage them to reframe those particular circumstances so that it is coming from a place of power rather than a sense of detracting from their worthiness well you can do it in a couple of ways and i let me let me tell you a story about the 1950s cars and the light blue Mm. color um one way that you can do it is to tell your unconscious mind that you want to find you want to see where the issue comes from. And then your unconscious mind, boom, will give you a download to your conscious mind uh, that will cause you to go, oh, oh, wow, that's weird, that's stupid. 
Uh, and it's very much a, an exercise of telling your unconscious mind. You don't ask your unconscious mind. You tell your unconscious mind, tell me what the issue is, and eventually it will come up. So, so for the light blue, for the longest time, oh, my God, every time I would see a mid-1950s car, I'd want to throw up. I mean, physically sick. And also, every time I would see a particular color of this light blue, physically sick. No idea why. Well, um, back up a little bit. I was left in Italy when I was nine months old with my grandmother. My parents left and came to the United States. So there's abandonment number one. And, you know, who knows what my tiny little mind put together saying, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Oh, they're abandoning me, etc. Then a couple of years later, well, I guess a little less than a couple of years later, because I was two, um, my grandmother brought me to the United States and she went back to Italy because her husband's in Italy, her whole life's in Italy, right? And I'm left with these two strangers, so abandonment number two. So you can imagine the crap that you know, my tiny little mind came up with. And uh, so one day I'm at my parents' house and all of a sudden I get this inspiration to ask my mother, what kind of car did you have when I was dropped off, when my grandmother brought me to the US? Lo and behold, a mid-1950s car. What color was it? That color of baby blue. And all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa. Now I have no issue with the color. I still don't like the 1950s cars because I think they're ugly, but I don't get that visceral reaction because uh, just by having it come up, and I didn't remember any of that stuff. My unconscious mind told me the question to ask. Mm. And then you see it and you, you realize, well, that was dumb. And it just kind of drops away. So mid-50s cars, I'm neutral on. I wouldn't buy one because like, I think they're ugly. Light blue, I own clothing that color now. It looks really good on me. <laughs> mm. So that's kind of the way it works. But there are mechanisms through working with somebody that, that knows how to get at those roots that you can actually release that stuff by design. Yeah, I love that. And I, I mean, just to speak to the non woo woo people in the audience, and this is kind of that borderline, but I like, I, I think this is so powerful because there's this specific thing. I mean, I, you talk about this all the time, like the RAS, the reticular activating system, like the, the specific example that is always given, if you're not familiar with it, it's like, if you buy a car, chances are immediately after you buy that car, you start seeing the damn thing all over the place. Or like, if I told you I'd pay you a hundred bucks for every purple car you saw, you'd start paying attention to more purple cars. And I think this is that perfect example of that. It's like, we all have these unconscious narratives exactly like you're alluding to. And if you call it out, uh, you're obviously significantly more likely to uncover that kind of stuff. And then once you're consciously aware of it, it's gone from that murky unconscious to something that you can actually work on. And obviously, as you just alluded to, is it can melt away. Um, but until you've made that declaration, it's very hard. So I love that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Getting Getting it to melt away is really key. And there are a couple of mechanisms that you can use, um, well, that, that we use, that I use with my colleagues uh, to do that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, the shift. Uh, you know, some people are like, 
oh, I can look back and I don't burst into tears. Mm. Wow. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll leave that. That's one of the, I'm sure we could do a whole episode on that topic. So we'll leave oh, that as a, a, a sampling for some people, dot, dot, dot. But I think there's so much gold there in like just becoming consciously aware of some of those things that are holding you back. And I say people that are longtime listeners have heard me say this a bajillion times, but the quote by Carl Jung, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of that. And I found it to be very true in my own life. And I would just encourage anyone to do that level of exploration. So um, kind of bridging the gap though, between the worthiness and kind of what you're up to now, one of the things that you are, are focused on is basically like redefining what high ticket really means and helping people to build a brand to attract ideal clients. And we're talking about the 100K and up level, not the, the 10 and 15K level. So I would love for you to share a little bit about your perspective of um, what, why, you're, why you're pursuing that and why you believe that high ticket is starting at 100K and up. Well, uh, high ticket can be however you want to define it. Uh, sure. But um, <clears throat> First of all, in, uh, in the industry, in the mentoring, coaching, you know, expert, uh, solving problems, you know, helping people with their funnels and with their putting together their, their signature programs and da, 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 da. all the competition is at the lower end. And I, yes, I'm making sweeping generalizations intentionally. Everybody's teaching the same crap. Crap is a technical term. Um, nobody, most people don't get results for a variety of reasons. And I realized that ten dollars to $15,000 is kind of like low, <laughs> uh, especially coming from the perspective as a management consultant, you'd be charging hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. Of course, you'd have a team and stuff. And when you get into this, the, the ultra high ticket, the hundred thousand, half a million, million plus range, it's not like it's going all in your pocket. You're really providing uh, experiences, services, calling in other experts and things. So the person, yeah, they're paying a lot of money, but the value they're getting is, is huge. So the first thing I recognized is that everybody, quote unquote, is playing on, uh, in, the, in the shallow end, <laughs> you know, at the, at the uh, very low level. Uh, that's where all the competition is. Everybody looks the same. Uh, it's like you've got the blind who lead the blind, who lead the blind, who lead the blind. So, and most of these people I'm finding are very, very good at selling their stuff, but what they deliver is crap. Mm. Again, crap being a technical term. I also noticed that the offerings at the high end are very, very, very thin. There are very few people operating at the high end. There are some very good people operating at the high end. There are some people operating at the high end who are operating at the high end. They're really good at what they're selling, but they're also thin. <laughs> so I saw a need for, or an opportunity, I guess a combination of both 
to operate at a very robust high end where I can take people who are 95% of the way there, whatever there means in terms of what they want to accomplish, whether it's in business or religion, religion, yeah, religion too, spirituality. <laughs> I don't know why religion popped out. I wanted to say spirituality, but also their personal stuff, uh, their leisure time, all that kind of thing. And so what I do is I work, I'm really, I call myself trusted advisor to the elite entrepreneur because I work with these people at the very, very high end in any arena that they need. And I can do that because of my management consulting background, my mergers and acquisitions background, my network marketing, having been one of the top people in the industry, you know, learning how to deal with people and get them to do stuff, even though nobody's paying them. Um, and uh, the various competitive experiences and everything else that I've done that I can't even remember at this point, but anyway. Uh, <clears throat> so I can really help people in, in all these arenas. And what I found is many of these people, these mentors, these coaches that are operating at the low level really have um, the wherewithal, the experience and the knowledge to really impact people at a higher level financially, but also targeting a, a different uh, group of people. Stop targeting the beginners. Go and target people who are accomplished that nobody's paying attention to. Yeah, you got the CEO coaches and that kind of stuff. Most of them have never been CEOs. So in my opinion, they're not well equipped to be coaching CEOs, uh, but that's a separate issue. So I really saw a few holes in the marketplace, the robustness, the people who have the wherewithal and the talent who have been led to believe that high ticket is 10 to 15,000, and then the completely unserved and underserved market of very accomplished people or people who inherited their money also. You wanna talk about screwed up people, talk to me about billionaires who <laughs> inherited their money. And uh, I know these guys I, I, from the yacht club, from skiing and so on. For some reason, people believe that they've got everything figured out. No, they're just as screwed up as the rest of us, right? Mm. And they need help too. So there's a big hole and many of them will not buy something if it's not expensive enough also. Mm. Man, there's so much there. <laughs> so I want to just address a concern that I know might come up in you listening right now. Obviously, we have people that listen on all ends of the spectrum, but I can imagine somebody that maybe hearing $100,000 be like, holy shit, that's a lot of money uh, to charge. And I'm not Darina. I'm not a rocket scientist that has worked as a management consultant and added $2 billion. So like, obviously, there's a, a point where uh, like there, there's some worthiness there as well, but like to somebody that may be thinking about that, how would you encourage them to at least stay open to the possibility for the rest of this conversation to figure out how we can get there? Well, one of the biggest things that I discovered, and it took me a while to discover it, unfortunately, uh, but the good news is I figured it out. Uh, it was all well and good to teach people techniques of, oh, in order to attract a very high-end client, you got to do this, 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 you got to become that, 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 that. And intellectually, they get there. But the problem was with those fundamental, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I don't deserve it, 
I'm not lovable, and so on. And those things have to be cleared before you can make that leap. Mm -hmm. If you don't clear those with somebody that knows how to get them cleared and then knows how to get you to, and I'm gesticulating here and I'm off camera, I see. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm pretending to be a professor at the front of the room. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you're gonna be in trouble. So the first key is getting rid of the crap, again, technical term. And then once you get rid of the stuff that's holding you back and it holds you back in weird forms. In fact, I had a client, come out here, uh, she wanted to be here to do a big talk in front of a bunch of people that was on Zoom, but she wanted to be here. And her, she's got an unconscious thing going on that, oh, well, she needs to be protected because if she, she gets out there, people might laugh at her or make fun of her or whatever. So what happened? What happened was she needed the password to the email that had the info to get on the thing and it was on her computer at home. It wasn't on her Chromebook. It wasn't on her phone. And that was her unconscious mind screwing her up to protect mm -hmm. her so she wouldn't get on the call. Long story short, we figured it out, got her on the call and it was fine. She did a great job, but that's the kind of stuff that happens. It looks like, oh, it's fate. I didn't, you know, how could this happen to me? Well, you did it to yourself because your unconscious mind is trying to do something for you. So for those people who want to operate at the high, high end, the first thing that needs to happen is to clear the crap. Uh, the second thing that uh, needs to happen is to re revamp, retweak whatever the existing high-end offering is, adjust it so that it can be perceived as something at a much higher level of value, which it probably already has, than the value at which you had been selling it. So it's a repositioning in your own mind, but also in your marketing's mind, marketing mm -hmm. in the mind of the people you're marketing to. And then you've got to hyper-target the right people. You can't be trying to sell a hundred or $150,000 program to a beginner. So you have got to have developed the confidence, which by getting rid of these beliefs, false beliefs, uh, will uh, put you on the path of, you have got to have the confidence in order to be able to talk to these people who happen to have money so that they see, yeah, oh, this person's one, one of us. Okay, yeah, I want to work with her. So there's a whole thing of becoming the person you need to be in order to operate at those levels. So you essentially need to become one of those people, those people in quotes. You uh, need to be comfortable and not be all nervous and stuff. And uh, by doing the work that you know, we wind up doing, that happens. And mm -hmm. yeah, you'll relapse, but we pick you up and <laughs> yeah. send you forward again uh, so it's an it's an iterative thing but once you're there you're never going to fall back yes you will be able to package your stuff and sell it in a package for you know 1997 but that requires nothing nothing from you it's just yeah. a canned thing so 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 brilliant and i can't there's so much wisdom there in in its simplicity, but obviously it's not 
easy just because it's simple, right? Like the, but those two things that you just said there, clearing the bullshit, <laughs> clearing the crap, and then the positioning. So um, obviously there's so many more places we could dive in for the, the clearing the crap, but let's let's start steering towards the positioning component of it. Um, I know that you and I had talked about this before. You have lots of foundational principles that I think uh, are really good for people to understand. And obviously we can't cover them all again, but I know one of the core things that we had discussed was this concept of archetypes and just like, obviously mm. quote unquote, know thyself, you know, it's like the more that you know who you are and the more that you can communicate authentically in that version of you. And that, that's where people see that congruency. So would you mind sharing a little bit about why the archetypes and then a little bit about the archetypes so that people can maybe have some foundational principles or concepts before we build on it? Well, well said, you just said it all. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Awesome. Period. Next All right. Question. We're done. <laughs> no. um, yeah. I, I've been working with our archetypes for probably, oh God, since, uh, how do you call the early 2000s? Since around you know, <laughs> the 2000. Early, early 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> Backstreet, since, Boys, Backstreet Boys era. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. Kind of like 2006-ish, 2008-ish, I discovered uh, this whole business of archetypes as applied to uh, the mentoring business. And I knew that archetypes were used for branding, the work done by Margaret Mark and Carol Pearson. And I used Carol Pearson's archetype assessment, which is the only scientific val scientifically validated archetype assessment out there. And um, this kind of happened as a result um, okay, I was in network marketing and I got to the top of my first company, New Skin Enterprises. And people were coming up to me going, oh my God, how did you do it? How did you get to Blue Diamond? You know, tell me, tell me, tell me. And what they were expecting was for me to say, okay, first you got to do this. Then you got to do that. Then you got to do the third thing. And that's not the way it works. And I realized that you needed to become... A, an attractor of your ideal people. So I set on a quest of how to do that. Who are your ideal people? How do you do that? And I came up with these archetypes uh, because I realized that in order to be an attractor of your ideal people, first of all, people like you are going to be attracted to you. So you need to figure out who you are so you can be that person, you know, my, I've got three archetypes all tied at the top and that's ruler, magician, and, um, and uh, rebel, in case you couldn't tell. And uh, those archetypes lead me to behave in certain ways. I'm going to dictate how things are done. I'm not going to ask somebody timidly, oh, how should we do this? I don't care what they think, right? I'm going to tell them what to think. And that's just my nature. Once you get into that, and then also I use uh, something called mind types that my friend Ridgely uh, came up with and incorporate that also to help people find their blocks. Once you have that stuff put together, you've got a good handle on who, you're at, who you actually are, and then you can work to show up as that person, show up authentically. Uh, what kind what kind of tone do you use when you speak? How do you dress? What 
jewelry you wear, what books you read, what stages you get on, what, I mean, everything that you do, you want to have driven by this underlying knowledge of who you really are. And if something is not congruent with who you really are, you shouldn't be doing it. You know, you shouldn't go on that stage that's not attracting your ideal people. You shouldn't be doing a bunch of stuff. And then what happens is once you're completely congruent in all arenas, uh, you know, including your Zoom background, here she is speaking about her Zoom background, but anyway, mm-hmm. um, what's going to happen is people are going to be attracted to you because you're going to be uh, vibrating at a higher level. Your frequency is going to be higher. You're going to be more of a light. You're going to be exuding a light from yourself. And that's going to attract people, whether whether they're the same archetype or a different archetype, they're going to be attracted to you and they're going to sit there and go, oh my God, I have to work with you. Or if I don't, I'm going to die. And that's the desired outcome for people that are operating at these higher levels. Mm-hmm. Did that yeah. answer the question? <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And just like a bunch of resources popped up in my head. If people want to explore this topic a little bit more, uh, one of my favorite books is the power of intention by Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he addresses this kind of frequency thing. Um, and again, this is the stuff that I, here's, here's my perspective is that if this stuff serves you, use it. If it, if it doesn't serve you, don't use it, you know? So like, that's kind of my thing, but the, in attune to the whole frequency thing, you know, when you're in a room with somebody that is negative and sucking, like you have a lower energy afterwards. Whereas after, if you have an engaging conversation with somebody that is positive, you feel better about yourself. So like, that's just how I've always uh, seen that in, in the power of intention. Actually, this is linking to kind of random resources together, but in the power of intention, Wayne Dyer references power versus force by David Hawkins. And I think he's one of the few, one of the few people that have kind of like calibrated this kind of stuff. So anyways, all, all those things that are, that are great. I want to zoom in a little bit more on the archetype thing, and and maybe this will give some people a a more concrete understanding of this. So in preparation for this arena, I went and I took the archetype quiz and I found out that my number one thing is creator. And my Mm -hmm. second one is ruler. And then I have a three-way tie between uh, jester, lover, and magician <laughs> after, after that. So I guess kind of across the board, but like, let's say somebody's listening, they go and they figure out what their archetype is. Uh, obviously it's, it's not going to really serve you to just sit here and list all of them, but I'm a creator. So what is that insight? What would, if I'm a client, what do you kind of encourage me to do as the next step? Once I kind of have that awareness? Well, I like to work with the primary two and a touch of the third of the other you, ones. Okay. You three thirds. I, I, got, <laughs> I got, I got, I got three number one. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you work with what you've got and, uh, how much stronger was creator than, um, ruler. So creator was 30 and ruler was 28. Okay. Okay. Um, so what I would say to somebody that has that kind of an archetype, uh, or those types of scores, you, and let's say you're in the business of coaching or mentoring, or, sure. well, even if you're working in a company, uh, what I would suggest to them is really get their branding together. And I've got a whole thing, you know, uh, with, with questions to put together their look and feel and how they show up and all that stuff. But I would really focus on the characteristic of a ruler in the context of those archetypes. Mm. 
okay? Because uh, leadership, did I say leadership or did I say a different word? I, uh, you said ruler, unless you're talking about another sentence. Yeah, yeah, but... no, no, no. I, okay, what I'm talking, what I wanted to say was, and I apologize, what I wanted to say was uh, that if you're in a position where you're in a company and you're trying to get promoted, where you are working as a mentor or as a coach, or whether you're in the network marketing industry wanting to build an organization, what you want to be focusing on, in my opinion, is uh, the leadership styles of the creator and the ruler, because that those styles, when you really implement those styles so that uh, you have them internalized and are completely natural to you, that will help elevate that vibration and will cause people to want to follow you and they won't know why they want to follow you. So the ruler does a lot of telling, <laughs> uh, does a lot of follow me kind of thing. And the creator, it's like, follow me, see what I can create. So it, you can combine those two. And then there, mm. of course, I, you know, between the ruler and the creator and well, all the archetypes, there are other components, you, you, how you work best uh, in a team, how and with the ruler creator, you work best in the team, because uh, as a leader, mm. that's you. I that's interesting that there's like, obviously you can lead. I never thought about it from the perspective of like expressing leadership from those different things. I think it was a lot easier for me to draw the correlation between me being a creator and like the branding needs to be more imaginative and visionary. And it's kind of like, like the words are using, but like also in the way that you communicate, obviously it, it goes throughout all this. And I would also just add to this as well. We're referencing specifically archetypes for you listening, but like a few other resources that have been really valuable for me and just tools that help you see a little bit more about yourself. The Colby is really good. I did a whole episode with someone, Emily Melius on the Colby Strengths Finder, Unique Ability 2.0 is a book I'd recommend by Dan Sullivan. Um, find your why, not not start with why, but the find your why, I found that a little bit more uh, instructive and, and applicable from by Simon Sinek. But like, I think all of these are pointing to the same thing. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Darina. It's like the closer you are in understanding with who and what you are, <laughs> obviously the easier it is to communicate that to the rest of the world. Exactly, exactly. And something else that, that is, uh, I've also find found useful is uh, Roger Hamilton's Wealth Styles. There are so many people out there that are trying to do things that are not congruent with their wealth styles. For instance, my wealth style is that of a star, upper right. And what does that mean? That means that my natural ability is to stand up in front of the room and shine the light on other people. Mm. You know, teach them, help them progress, so on and so forth. And uh, back in a previous incarnation in this lifetime, when I was uh, a rocket scientist, it involved a lot of um, programming. Man, I wrote some massive analytical programs. Oh, my God. And I could do it, but I didn't love it. And then when I, when I did uh, Roger's, uh, Roger's uh, Wealth Styles assessment, I'm like, oh, no wonder I I didn't like that because yeah. that's not my wealth style. That's not where I shine. Yeah, I can do it. And there are so many people out there 
who are doing stuff that's against their nature. So they're not in flow. Everything's difficult for them. You identify some of these things and reposition yourself and realign yourself. All of a sudden, life becomes a hell of a lot easier, as does business and uh, anything else that you need to do. So yeah, there's, there's I don't know. Tools. I don't know what uh, philosophy this comes from, but it's like Wu Wei, the concept of effortless action. You know, it's like the yeah. more in alignment you are, you get to kind of move down the river instead of fighting against the river and all that kind of stuff. So super powerful. And, and ironically, I just, I was curious. I looked up my wealth dynamics. I am also a creator in wealth dynamics <laughs> as I am inside of archetypes. So I guess there's some consistency across testing there. Uh, yeah. Something I need to examine a little bit. So so let's let's zoom zoom back uh, up and then we'll zoom back down again. So it's like we talked about, you know, building a brand that empowers you to attract high level clients. Um, and and by doing that, you can obviously solve some big problems, but also you are working with people that are more likely to get results and you can uh, do lots more incredible things in the world. And then we talked about obviously getting to know yourself a little bit more and then you can brand yourself according to that. Another thing that has come up as a pattern in other guests that I've interviewed, and this is up also in your work, is being willing to go against the crowd. So there's as much as it is of knowing who you are, there's also the what do you not tolerate? And so I would love for you to kind of share a little bit about that uh, necessity inside of a brand to take a stand against something. Very much so. And one of, one of the rules that uh, I, I uh, talk about in the, the, <laughs> the freebie that I have up on my Circle of Elite Entrepreneurs website is you want to be polarizing. You want people to either love you or hate you. And one of the keys is what do you refuse to stand? What kind of behavior do you refuse to participate in? And you want to articulate that so that people know. You know, if somebody comes to me and they're whiny and oh, yeah, bullshit, bullshit, it's like, no, we're done. <laughs> You know, come back when we can have a coherent conversation. I'm not listening to this, you know, listening to their stories and sympathizing. Oh, poor you. That just keeps them in victim mode, which we don't want. So absolutely. Uh, being polarizing is key. Having fixed ideas of, and this isn't, this isn't being polarizing for the sake of being polarizing, although that is, that, that's a strategy too. Um, you want to be polarizing in the sense that you've got very fixed ideas of what it takes for somebody to, um, well, if, if you're working in the space I'm in, very clear idea of what needs to happen for the person in order for them to get to where they want to be. If somebody says, oh, they need to do this and this and they need to figure, you know, develop this program. No, don't want to hear it. Not interested. This is the way we go and this is the way we make things happen. And you're not derailed by everybody else's opinion because I find that most people are not qualified to have an opinion. And you've got to differentiate those who are qualified to have an opinion. You know, Jay Abraham, for instance, I'd listen to him all day. Other people, not so much. 
Yeah, right. I would. Yeah, I would. Well, there's just a side tangent there, but yeah, Jay Abraham stuff. Getting everything you can out of all you've got is a great first start of that. But look at I always look to see the people that are out there teaching right now. Who did they learn from? And usually you'll find most roads point to Jay Abraham, <laughs> uh, which is a which is a good one. Well, and, and, and most good people. Yeah. Then, you, yeah, then, sure. then you've got the the set that are targeting the you know the beginners. And that's the blind leading the blind. But yeah, no, Jay's been around for a long time. He's done some great things. I've been, or he's been on my radar. And I guess I've been on his radar too um, for many decades. Yeah. Many decades. Yeah. That's good stuff. So I, I, as you were speaking, I had two insights that collided because I'm working, I'm in a mastermind right now. And we were talking about this concept just the other day about the necessity to position against something. And there was an intricacy to this that I learned the other day that I didn't quite realize, but um, it's to stand against something, you have to get crystal clear on the dominant narrative that society holds around that particular thing. So I, I said that kind of abstractly, I'll say something concretely, like something I've considered positioning against is this concept of the dream 100. And it's like this idea, if you're listening, you're not familiar with it. It's like, come up with a list of hundred people that would be massively impactful on your business. And then you create this list. And if you built relationships with them, it's all well and good. But what I found is that like most of the teaching out there on this topic, it's like, yeah, you build this lofty list and it's, it's, it's a dream 100, but like, how do you actually go about building relationships with them? How do you actually serve them? And like, so, you know, I started articulating that I was, this is something I was considering positioning against, but then this group I was in, they were talking about, well, I'm not familiar with that concept, but like, oh, I am familiar with this concept and this is what it actually means to me. And so that was kind of the aha I had the other day is like, if you're going to position against something, you have to be very clear about what the dominant narrative is, because it may not be exactly your conception of what it is from how you learned it. Other people might see it differently. So um, long way of saying do you find that to be something that's necessary is to get a clear understanding of like how people perceive this thing that you're positioning against and how to frame it when you teach about it well first of all i want to comment about the dream 100 and the misuses in my opinion of the dream 100 i find that a lot of people most people i know again sweeping generalizations um, I don't have the statistics, but it's my impression that most people, when they put together this Dream 100 list, come from uh, the position of a supplicant. Oh, if I could just talk to this person, and then, you know, if they ever meet this person, they turn into a puddle, mm-hmm. right? They don't know what to do. Yeah. Uh, before it's fine to make a list of people that you think, you know, would help you in your business, not just for the sake of meeting them, but, uh, also because they're, they're, they, there's a particular aspect that they could help you with. But when you actually get into a position where you can actually meet them, you've got to come, uh, as a peer to peer. Yeah. Uh, you can't come as as a supplicant. And I know I get a lot of messages on my uh, LinkedIn with people who are being supplicants. <laughs> they, they're, they're coming from a perspective of, oh, would it please be possible? Maybe if you have a chance and it's not too much trouble, look at my thing. 
And then at the other extreme, you've got people coming and sending you something. Hey, to learn the market, you got to watch my video. And yeah, clearly yep. they've done absolutely no research and the reaction is delete, basically. Uh, no, who is this idiot? And then delete, <laughs> right? Um, so that's something to be careful of the Dream 100. But uh, yeah, one thing that's very useful to do, and I, I, I wouldn't call it the Dream 100, but basically look around and focus on building a consortium of known good people that can complement what you do. They do, they do stuff better. They do stuff you don't do, but your client's going to need. Or you may do it, but they do it 100 times better uh, that your client's going to need. If you build this consortium of known good people, that's really useful because you can work as kind of the maestro, uh, the conductor of how all these people work together. And one of the one of the problems I find is that people are disjointed. Many clients aren't strong enough to figure out how to conduct all the pieces that need to happen. If they were, they wouldn't need somebody like me, uh, you know, or somebody, you know, somebody similar. I. Uh, and so what happens often is people will do their work with the client and they'll do really good work and the client will need another piece and they'll go and ask God knows who. And they come back with a completely different idea that screws up what the work that you did and the mm -hmm. client's off you know, with multiple personalities. You know, <laughs> This one's telling them this, the other one's telling them that, the third one's telling them the third thing. So uh, I think that uh, you want to have those people that are known that can be known good on your dream 100. Then there are the people who can introduce you to the circles that you want to be you know, you want to be in. And then of course you can also get the clients. Uh, but you, you, you gotta make, make sure you're not coming from neediness because otherwise you shouldn't even bother with the exercise. Yeah. Well, I appreciate those comments that kind of validate some of the stuff that I want to explore a little bit and articulate, because I think there are lots of flaws with it. Because it's like, I think most people's reaction, it's like, oh, Dream 100, let me put Tony Robbins and Jay Abraham as number one. And then it's just like, okay, <laughs> like, that's not the one that's not going to be useful. And two, if you did want to build them, not saying that you shouldn't put them on your list, but like, you need significant ways to add value to them. And most likely that's going to be something that'll pay off in 10 years from now, not, exactly. not in the next, not in the next few years, you know? So like there needs to be an in-between of ways to add value and people that are, um, you know, like you said, being peer to peer, but like accessible, you know, you want to find ways to really add value to them in ways that are, can create multiplicative opportunities for everyone that's involved. So I love that. And I, I appreciate you being willing to provide some feedback there. So let's, let's talk a little bit. We talked about a little bit about going against the crowd. Another thing that you talk about that I think is so brilliant is this concept of a velvet rope, like making sure that you ha are making, why well, I, I won't allude to it anymore. Tell us about the velvet rope. <laughs> the velvet rope. That's a uh, Jay Abraham, Rich Sheffron term. I stole it okay. there in square. I borrowed it. I borrowed it. That's it. Um, but, but the velvet rope uh, is you want to have a magical place where only your top clients can hang out. And the term comes from you want to get into back in the day, Studio 54, there'd be the velvet rope back in the 70s. And certain people, they'd move the velvet rope and they could go right into Studio 54. And the rest of the peons probably wouldn't get in at all, but they're in line, right? 
So you want to create uh, such a uh, an environment, whether it's um, well, it, it can be live, of course, you know, it, it's like the yacht club, there's a velvet rope around the yacht club, only certain people can get into, you know, whichever yacht club, and you've got to become a member and you've got to be sponsored and you've got to be vetted and you've got to be uh, essentially approved in order to be able to go and use the yacht club and then you find people who are similar to you. Uh, you can do that in business uh, by having the, well, the circle of elite entrepreneurs uh, level X, right? Only certain people are able to come into that level. Other people can come in at the lower level, which is, you know, the Facebook group. But boy, if you want to be in that top mastermind, you've got to um, jump through hoops. You need to have taken, you know, done certain programs. Uh, so you have the context within which you can have the conversations and uh, that sort of thing. And when you create this velvet rope, what you're doing is you're creating something that not just anybody can get. So it elevates uh, the perception of you, your offering, those clients that are part of that velvet uh, rope community in the eyes of others, and it gives something for people to aspire to, and it allows you to essentially create a ladder through which people can pass and eventually, you know, get to that coveted position, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, that's just what I've observed from seeing the highest level masterminds that are out there. Exactly. Essentially, all the only thing that you're paying for is the velvet rope. Essentially. It's like, Hey, I have this group and like everybody that is in this room right now, I'm gesturing behind me because you can't hear me on, on audio, but I'm, I'm inviting you into this room. You can come into this, this cool group, but you, these are the people that fit in this criteria. Do you want to join? It's 25 grand <laughs> and people pay for that. But it's like, you have to be very clear about like the quality and the caliber of people. And obviously there is that, that, that exclusivity that makes it very attractive for the right fit people. So uh, I love that. Yeah, well, pe people, people pay for access. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're paying for. They're not, they probably know as much as everybody else. Yeah, they'll pick up an idea here or there, but they're paying for access to uh, the colleagues' networks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? So love that. So I know we are kind of coming up on time here. I have one more question that we can kind of start wrapping things up. Does that work for you, Dorina? Sure. All right, sweet. So another thing that we talked about before is basically articulating your vision for, for people. And so like, you know, so just again, zooming back out, and I think this is really just relevant. So everybody sees how this all fits in. It's like you get clear on who you are, you take these tests, and you kind of do all this reflective journaling, you're positioning what you're against, you create an exclusive group that only certain people can come in, and you're starting to see I'm just, I'm, you're starting to see how this all builds together, obviously, and you have all these elements and they start to add on top of each other. One of these other elements that you, you've talked about is being able to clearly articulate your vision for people. And so I would love for you to share a little bit about that and maybe some tools that you have found useful to get clarity on the vision or the why behind what you do. Um, I talk about that in the sense of your being able to articulate the vision of where the people want to go better than they can. Because a lot of people who come in as your clients, even the uber wealthy, they don't know. They just know something's wrong. 
they've made all this money, they have all the houses, they have the jet, they have this, they have that, and they're still miserable. And so the vision in that kind of an instance would be to paint the picture of them, yes, having all this stuff, but also having the relationship of their dreams, uh, having the friendships and interactions of their dreams, having room to do what they want when they want to do it, uh, if, if they're killing themselves for their business, which a lot of people do because they don't know what else to do. And if they don't work on their business, they're sitting there watching TV. Uh, or, you know, not doing something that they would like to do. So uh, you've got to look at the clients that you really want to be serving, ideally, and describe their vision of their ideal existence better than they can, so that they go, oh, yeah, that's what I want. And then you can refine it in the context of uh, what they're envisioning. And vision work is a big component of what I do with clients. Where, mm -hmm. you know, where, where do you really want to be? And we also get into the end dimensions where n goes to infinity and multiple, uh, you know, different planes of existence and the meaning of consciousness, the nature of reality and all that also, which oftentimes the lack of those conversations is what's missing for these people. There's got to be more. Yeah, there's a hell of a lot more. You're, you're, uh, you're an infinitesimal of everything that exists for you. Let's reframe what's going on for you. And they go, oh, 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 yeah. That's why I felt like, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah. Right? Yeah people are silently begging to be led. And I think that that's kind of like a misconception that people think it's like people at the top have it all figured out, but like people at the top are looking for other mentors in yeah. specific areas, right? So like, if you have one of those pieces of the puzzle and you can articulate the vision on that piece of the puzzle, it doesn't matter how successful someone is um, if you can contribute and add value there. So I absolutely love that. And hopefully that maybe shattered and opened some people's brains <laughs> into yeah. specific things today. I know that's, that's very powerful. So Dorina, this has been an absolute blast. I, I want to ask kind of my final question that I asked lots of guests, and then we can kind of wrap up and find out where people can find out more about you and everything that you're up to. But the question I like to ask uh, guests when I get the chance and I don't run out of time is what does happiness mean to you today, Dorina? Um, being really uh, at peace and heading towards enlightenment where nothing phases you. It's not about, okay, here I go. I'm telling you what it's not. I shouldn't be doing that, but I'm going to anyway. You know, it's not, it's not about the money. It's not about the clothes. It's not about, you know, being seen here or there or whatever it is. It's really being at peace within and feeling as though you uh, can have or find everything that you want, but more in a spiritual sense than in a stuff sense. And also 
being able to articulate it in such a way as to be able to pass some of that path to eventual enlightenment to others. Hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. Beautiful. I, I, I can't add anything to that. And we will just ask the final concluding question. That is, where can people find out about all the other stuff that you have going on, Darina? All? All? All of it. Open there, the kimono. Give it up. <laughs> there's no one place to do that. You got to talk to me. Um, you can go to circleofeliteentrepreneurs.com. Make sure you spell entrepreneurs right. And... Um, you can reach me through that website. I also have DorinaLanza.com uh, and that actually has my phone number on it if you want to call me or, uh, <clears throat> or text me. I'm pretty, pretty easy to find. I'm pretty much around and I love having conversations with people seeking uh, the, the higher, uh, higher vibrations, higher frequencies mm. and uh, you know, see what we can do together or, or whatever. So yeah, and of course, you can also email me at Dorina at Circle of Elite Entrepreneurs dot com and refer to this um, this uh, podcast. So, Sweet. Yeah, when awesome. I scroll down, I won't go delete, 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 delete. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Awesome. Well, I just want to have a quick conversation with you listening right now. And the conversation is always the same if you've been here before. But I just want to say, if this is your first episode, like you've never listened to a single episode before, and you could be anywhere else, but you decided to hang out with Darina today. I am so grateful to have you here. And I look forward to continue to build a relationship with you. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you. I say it every week. I don't get sick of saying it. You know how much I love you for coming back every single week. And whether you are a new friend or an old friend, the one favor I have to ask is, is if you have heard something that has impacted your life, which I guarantee if you're still listening to this point, you've heard something today, whether it was the story from the very beginning of how Darina's had this crazy uh, eclectic background of all these different things and how she's been able to mix that together into building a world that she absolutely loves and is helping people to position in a way that makes them the highest expressions of themselves. That's super, super powerful. And that can absolutely change someone's life. So would highly appreciate it if you could share that but whether you choose to do that or not i appreciate you so much for being here and darina any final things you want to say before we say goodbye for the for today's interview um be the greatness that's inside you period end of sentence full period. stop awesome <laughs> love that thank you so much darina and thank you for being here today i appreciate you and we'll talk to you soon